All right, we started a few weeks ago a series called Flow, and we basically want to pull back from the small questions that we ask, because often when we think about, you know, what is God's will, immediately we think, well, is, my, is it his will for me to take the promotion or not? Is it his will for me to put my kids in private school or public school? Is it his will for me to move to Omaha or not? Hopefully not. Um, but, I mean, we're asking questions like that, and what we're trying to do in this series is kind of pull back a little bit and say, what is his will in Scripture from the beginning? What are the big things of God? And so we started in Genesis chapter 1. And we saw in the very first chapter of the Bible that God's intention when he made us and made this creation was to bring light out of darkness, was to bring order out of anarchy, was to bring fellowship, relationship, friendship out of loneliness. That is what he was about in the beginning. That is what he has been about as we read the story of Scripture. That's what he is about today. Then we talked about blockage. So God has this flow of blessing that we find out in, in Genesis chapter 1. He blessed Adam and Eve. There's this flow of blessing. There's this blockage, though, of sin. You and I are sinners. Um, some of us have been redeemed by the grace of Jesus Christ. Our new identity is in Christ. But we all struggle with sin. We found out in Scripture that sin is this blockage that interrupts our relationship with God, that interrupts the flow of his blessing into our lives. Then we talked about this guy named Elijah. Remember Elijah? incredible man of faith who was willing to take on the political powers of his day in this duel on Mount Carmel, challenged the, the prophets of Baal and, and who were underwritten by Jezebel, the queen of Israel, challenged and won the victory. You remember the, the altar consumed in fire when he prayed to Yahweh. And then we saw Elijah struggling. Remember, we saw his depression. We saw what you could, I think, honestly call some suicidal tendencies after that when he's like, God, just take my life. In my life now. And we found out something when Elijah was in this cave about listening to God. God was not done with Elijah. In the noise and the clatter of Elijah's world, he figured God was done. He figured it was all over. But when he was quiet, when he got rid of the noise in his life, he was able to hear the voice of God and know that the Lord had other plans for him. And then last week was a sermon preached for me. I hope you got some benefit out of it as well. But we talked about this guy named Naaman, this uh, general and, uh, of, of the armed forces of, of, of Aaron. And we talked about how he was a man who struggled with leprosy more than that underneath the skin, struggled a little bit with pride like so many of us do. And so we saw that one of the key virtues that keeps us in the flow of God's will is humility, modeled uh, Perfectly in the life of Jesus Christ, who had all power, all authority, but released that, Philippians chapter 2, so that he could serve and empty himself. Well, this morning, we're going to change gears a little bit. We're going to move into the New Testament. I think you're going to like the story this morning, but we're going to talk a little bit about socially, a socially awkward situation. 
Have you ever been in one of those before? Of course you have. I mean, every one of us has been in a situation where somebody said the wrong thing or did the wrong thing, made a fool out of themselves. At least I know I have. I hope you all have too, so I'm not alone on this. I remember one time, this is about 15 years ago, so it makes it a little less fresh, uh, the wounds of this, I guess. But, but about 15 years ago, right before, a year before our family moved to Brazil with our team to do mission work, we visited Brazil for a couple of weeks on a survey trip. And so we visited some different churches, Churches of Christ and other churches, to see you know, what was working in Brazil. We met with church leaders and things. And one evening we were in Vitoria, Brazil, a coastal city in Brazil, and we got to spend time in the 16th floor apartment of a senora, an older woman who had been part of that church in Vitoria for a long time, a very sweet lady. Um, however... She introduced us to the mother of all nasty food. She did. Got off on the 16th floor. We had a, by the way, Claudia, our firstborn, was six weeks old. So she was tiny. She was back in a a back bedroom there sleeping and everything. And, And what we saw when we walked in was this gorgeous white cake on the middle of the table. This was what we were going to share together. And obviously, we're trying our best to honor those who are hosting us and to show respect and to enjoy what they serve us. So there's this beautiful white cake. It looked like it had maybe a half inch of vanilla frosting on top, only it was a bolo salgado, which means a salty cake. All right? Now, a salty cake, very popular in Brazil. By the way, 99.9% of Brazilian food aces. This, not so much. A salty cake is, is covered with not vanilla frosting, but it's covered with about a half inch of room temperature mayonnaise, all right? And <laughs> yeah, right. And I'm okay with some mayo, right, spread thin on a sandwich, but not, not that much. And, and then there are these layers in, in the cake as you cut it open where you've got bread, and then you've got more mayo in between the slices of bread, and you've got like peas and carrots and other stuff that I guess is left over in the fridge. This is a bolo salgado. And she was serving up some healthy portions of this. So I took my large slice of bolo salgado, which... I got to tell you guys, I was borderline needing the barf bag. I'm just looking at the thing, smelling it, feeling its room temperaturedness and everything. And I figured it was time to go back and check on our infant daughter. (laughs) Can't be too safe, you know, foreign country and all that. So I went back to the, the back bedroom and I taught that Bolo Salgado how to do base jumping. I released it into the wild. I cast it out of the 16th floor window. I knew I couldn't leave it anywhere in her apartment or she would find it and she would be hurt and she would abandon Jesus, right? So I had to get rid of it. And then I went back in and she was so thrilled that I ate it that she gave me another big piece. I taught that one how to fly as well. Ah, my mission team was so mad at me. After that party, they're like, you dirty. They all ate the stuff, you know? Anyway. By the way, if you're thinking of not having children, there are benefits to having children you may have never imagined. So anyway, socially awkward situations. There is probably no piece of of the social world as fertile for awkwardness as the wedding, right? Right? 
At the wedding, you've got the in-laws, the outlaws. You've got the people that you know should be there and the kind of borderline people you invited anyway. You've got the divorced parents. You've got all sorts of little things that can go wrong, right? At our wedding, it was 45 minutes before the wedding ceremony. Our three-layer sweet wedding cake toppled over. Um, you know, our marriages survived, though. So it can survive things like that, right? But, but you can have the, the three-year-old flower girl have the meltdown. I mean, you guys have seen it. Any, any number of things can go wrong. And that is why John chapter 2 is the perfect place to talk about a socially awkward situation and how the grace of God comes into this moment at this wedding feast in Cana, close to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, probably about five miles, right? John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. The next day there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana and Galilee. These things went on for about a week. Jesus' mother was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out. Uh Uh-oh. Ran out during the festivity, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing. Each one could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some of it out, take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. He told us to do it, okay? Verse 9, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, Not knowing where it had come from, though, of course, the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the cheap stuff. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his what? His glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum, spent a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Look, as we go through the Gospels and we think about what Jesus was up to, the ministry of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, we think, and I think appropriately so, we think about all of the big things he did, right? The momentous things that he did. Uh, a blind person healed. The lame are walking. The demon-possessed are free. We think about these, these incredible teachings about love and about the kingdom of God. In John chapter 2, we remember that God is concerned even about the smaller details of life concerned even about what might be social suicide for those hosting a wedding in Cana. Social faux pas. Now, let me tell you, this is what preachers usually do with this story, okay? You may have heard this before. What we like to do is to tell you how awful it would have been for the wine to run out. I mean, that's what we usually do, about 20 minutes on how incredible, you don't understand, it's just really, really bad. Look, it wouldn't have been that bad, all right? The wine runs out, okay? You know, people would have gotten over it. Yes, embarrassing. Yes, a little bit of shame. Um, The family could have made up for it at some other celebration. People would have, yes, been talking about it for a few years, but everybody would have been okay. Um, So there is another point to this miracle. 
Now, Jesus and his family would have almost certainly, well, we know they knew these people. That's why they got invited, all right? But they were practically neighbors of these folks living just a few miles away. Mary did not want these folks to have to suffer through this embarrassing, awkward situation. Um, And so she wanted her son to do something and believed he could. Jesus, however, by the way, we always assume Mary knew Jesus could do a miracle, Maybe she just thought Jesus could run down the street and pick up some wine somewhere, right? Handle the situation, all right? Um, Many people think Joseph had passed on this time. That's why Jesus is the one she turns to. Um, So anyway, but she wanted him to solve it, whatever it was. Um, So Jesus tells her basically first, remember, not our problem, not our problem. I mean, someone did not plan well. Someone sent out too many invitations or didn't purchase enough wine. Someone did not plan well. Not our problem. He tells her, my time has not yet come. He realizes as soon as he makes a statement of his glory, even to his own disciples, he understands that the clock will begin ticking toward the cross. He's not ready yet. This does not fit into his plan for the day, but Mary wants him to do something. And even though... It wasn't part of his agenda for the day. He transforms about 150 gallons of water into wine so that the party can go on. John told us a chapter earlier in John chapter 1, and we read this verse last week. Look at John chapter 1, verse 17 with me. John chapter 1, verse 17 And why don't you read this out loud with me? For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. One more time. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses and Jesus are very interlocked, all right? If you know the Old Testament story, if you know the story of Moses, you know this. They are interlocked. Moses is, in a sense, a shadow of Jesus, the real Savior, the real liberator, the real and final rescuer of Israel and of everyone who calls on his name. Moses was about law, law and order. Jesus, truth, and grace. Do you remember the first plague miracle performed by Moses? Of course you do. You can remember the flannel graph like it was yesterday. The first plague miracle of Moses was water into what? Blood. Went to the Nile River, extended his hand. The waters of the Nile turned into blood. There is judgment there. There is condemnation there. Jesus shows up. His first miracle is to turn water into wine. The good stuff. It's joy. It's celebration. It's grace. Moses was about a nation that needed to be judged. Jesus about a wedding party that needed to be rescued. Grace and truth through Jesus. We're going to talk about this story for just a few minutes. And I think what we learn about improvisation, improvisation in the kingdom of God. Jesus models this for us in this story. story. The first thing on your outline that I want you to write down this morning that we learn from how Jesus handled the situation. Jesus changed his agenda so he could grace any situation in which he found himself. 
Grace sharing isn't convenient. There may be times where it is, where it's not so inconvenient. But as a rule, grace sharing isn't convenient. That's why we look to the cross every week. We remember the ultimate sharing of grace and the cost Jesus paid to extend that to us. One of the curious things about this story in John chapter 2 is that solving a wine shortage was very clearly not part of Jesus' original plans, all right? Um, A need popped up, a need that did not fit into the plan for the day, but one Jesus ended up choosing to engage, choosing to address. Jesus was flexible. Jesus was adaptive. Jesus was riffing. He was improving. He wasn't going to change his mission But he was willing to adapt his schedule to share grace in an hour of need. Now, it's really easy for us, and I'm preaching myself more than anybody else, it's really easy for us to marry ourselves to our plans, all right? to kind of the map that we have laid out for a particular day, for a particular week, for a particular year. Very easy for us to marry ourselves to those plans and then to close ourselves when a kingdom opportunity arises, right? When one of these moments appears, we are the Levite or the priest passing by the need and ignoring a chance to share grace. For example... At Preston Crest, we know that we have been called, especially at Preston Crest, our congregation has been called in a unique way into international missions. So we have a beautiful history of international missions. In fact, we're even doing international missions here today through our Friends Speak ministry. But at the same time, we have to understand that we can't hop over East Dallas on our way to Eastern Europe. You hear what I'm saying? Jesus placed us here. He made us a church of Christ in Dallas. And so, yes, we share the gospel abroad, but we will not forsake our neighbors. And I praise God that we're not. I praise God at all of the movements that are starting in this congregation to impact our city with the love of Christ. I think God is showing us, and very clearly through Dream Power this year, very clearly that our mission starts right here in the fourth largest urban center of the United States. Right? So, yes, rescue the world for Jesus, and yes, it starts right here in our community. The second thing, amen? I think that deserves an amen, right? Second thing here Jesus shows us about this improv is Jesus hardly ever, I love this, Jesus hardly ever doled out grace the same way twice. It was always different. It was always unique. Grace sharing isn't often conventional. It's part of improving. Jesus graced this wedding party in Cana. It was hardly a conventional miracle. I think we can all agree on that. That's what raises some eyebrows, or that's what causes some people to kind of stick up, skip over the very first miracle sign in the Gospel of John. It's a little bit weird. And, and, and I mean, think about this extravagance and this excessiveness. First, the very first miracle is making wine. Seems a little unnecessary. But not only does Jesus make wine, he, he makes great wine right? Didn't have to be great. 
I mean, wouldn't the wedding party have learned more, uh, you know, learned a lesson if let's make kind of average stuff or even poor quality stuff. That'll learn them for next time. But Jesus, when he gets involved, when he gets involved, he gives his best. He does something incredible to bless these folks. Um, and check this out. I don't know if you thought about this before. The kind of the creativity of Jesus, the, the, the wildness of Jesus, if you will. Just think about his miracles for a second. Let's just kind of think about, let's just talk about blindness for a second. The healing of blindness. So you've got like in Matthew chapter 9. There's this variety of healing when it comes to blindness. In Matthew chapter 9, for example, he's got these four blind men. He heals them by touching their eyes. When he touches their eyes, they're healed. Mark chapter 10, there's this blind guy named Bartimaeus. You remember him begging by the side of the street? Jesus doesn't do anything except say, your faith has made you well. Boom, healed. Then think about John chapter 9 where he heals this blind man by picking up some dirt off the ground, spitting into it, making mud, putting it on his eyes. That's how he heals that blind man. Or what about Mark chapter 8? Heals a blind man by applying his spit to the man's eyes. The man is partially healed, does it again, the blindness is fully cured. Never the same way twice. Always something different, healing the exact same illness. Why do you think Jesus did that? Why wouldn't he have a recipe that we could put into a book, a five-step process for healing somebody? You ever thought about that? Maybe Jesus thought we needed a little more improv and a little less procedure. Maybe Jesus knew that if he gave us a five-step guide to healing people, that we would become attached to the formality of getting the steps right instead of attached to the heart of reaching out to those who need healing. Hmm? Maybe Jesus knew that at some point in history, well-meaning followers of his would attempt to domesticate him, figure him out, and make him predictable. It's a beautiful thing when the love of God is shared in wild and predictable, inventive, improvisational, extravagant ways. Number three on your outline. Jesus showed grace by lovingly meeting the needs of those he came in contact with. Grace sharing is never coercive, right? It does not force somebody to accept its help. It does not manipulate. If you go through the ministry of Jesus, he's bold, he's clear, he's decisive, but he never forces anyone to accept the cure, forces anyone to accept him as their savior. He always speaks into the needs of those around him. To the Pharisees, you know, all tied up in their rules and their regulations and getting everything right, missing out on the heart of God. To the Pharisees, he is confrontational. He speaks the truth. He is truth and grace, remember? He speaks the truth because that's what they needed. 
He speaks the truth because he loved them, and that's what they needed. For a man or a woman stuck in sin, Jesus tells them, go and sin no more, because that's what they needed. Sin is the blockage that destroys relationship with God and destroys the order of things, the blessing of God in a marriage or in a career. It destroys that, and so Jesus calls them out of that destruction of sin and into fellowship with the will of God. And for those who are marginalized or oppressed He offers not only a word of comfort, but he offers personal contact. His life, his whole life was about, and this is our our vision at Preston Crest, his whole life was about passion for God and compassion for others. Anything Jesus did fits into one of those, passion for God or compassion for others. So, want to know why people loved Jesus? You want to know why people today, 2.4 billion or something, are worshiping Jesus? Because of the way Jesus loved folks. Because of the way Jesus saw the needs of people and did something. That's why he is such an attractive leader. At the wedding in Cana, Jesus improvised, right? He turned water into wine, never been done before, never been done since. Because of this creative improvisation, this wedding party was saved. (laughs) All because Jesus let the need of a particular moment interrupt. All right, spiritually... Let's talk about what it is, what it isn't. Spiritually, improvisation means honoring the past, but searching for the future at the same time. Spiritually, improvisation means honoring the past, but searching for the future at the same time. It's a desire to make something new come out of something Old. It happens when we allow people around us, particularly our congregation, particularly our Christian mentors and friends, to have an impact on what we're thinking and what we're doing. By the way, got to put a footnote on this here. It's in the story, so we got to mention it. When we go out and we do good in our community... Right? When we give away Thanksgiving baskets or, or Christmas presents to, to kids at Wallace Elementary, when we do good in our community, we do it for the glory of Jesus. I know this is kind of like, yeah, of course, right? But I mean, you can just do good things. You can just help folks out. The difference is we as followers of Christ do it for the glory of Jesus. If I just go around doing good things, people are going to think I'm a great guy, which I'm not. And so we always point to Jesus. And you remember in this story at the wedding miracle in Cana, in in verse 11, we find Jesus did this miracle for his glory. It's always about the glory of Jesus. And so we connect our good works with the good news. We connect our good works with the good news. We're not coercive. We're not putting strings, attaching strings to the good that we do, but we let people know, this is why I blessed you, because Jesus has blessed me. Wynton Marcellus, I love jazz, by the way. Wynton Marcellus, one of the great jazz musicians of our time, um, 
one time, uh, I think it's 2001, Greenwich Village, he was performing this song, I Don't Have a Ghost of a Chance with You. He was performing it. It was incredible. The audience was, was just totally engaged, and he's just riffing, and as he's kind of winding it down, somebody's cell phone goes off, right? And for like 10 seconds, this annoying ringtone is going off. And this critic from the New York Times that was there wrote two words, magic gone on his notepad. And then it happened. Marcellus, people were chattering. The moment was ruined. Marcellus began to take the notes of that ringtone, and he began to play them over and over, slow, fast, different keys. He played them over and over until everyone's attention was with him again. He seamlessly transitioned back into the melody of the song. And when it was over, ovation, standing ovation. There are a lot of ways that we can improvise. There are a lot of ways that we can share God's grace. There are a lot of moments that he gives us. Some of them are predictable. Some of them are planned. Some of them we know we're going to do. We budget for them. Some of them not. I want to share with you this morning a really cool opportunity. And it's just just out there if you're interested in it. Over the past few years, a study has been conducted it's been conducted by our city government and by City Square Ministry, used to be Central Dallas Ministry. They worked on this study to identify the most expensive homeless people in Dallas, right? Expensive in terms of, by the way, average, on average, these folks cost the, the taxpayers of Dallas between forty-five dollars and $150,000 a year. Psychiatric care, jails, medical attention, social services, they identified the most expensive homeless folks in Dallas. And then City Square said, we've got an idea. Why don't we build a community of cottages and we will start with the 50 most expensive homeless folks in Dallas. All right, and we're going to build this community, and each of those folks is going to have a home. Each of that, those folks is going to have stability, is going to have their needs met. We're going to have uh, seven-day-a-week psych- psychiatric care in this, in this area. We're going to call it the cottages at Hickory Creek. And what we're going to do is we're going to invite lead churches from Dallas to sponsor a cottage. And so they will sponsor it with like $50,000. They sponsor the cottage. The cottage is built. And then that congregation will build a relationship with the man or woman that they have rescued. That congregation, They'll take him fishing. They'll invite him over for Christmas. They'll take her out for a movie. Um, they'll, they'll build a relationship with that person. And they'll have access to this community. What an amazing way to impact our city. What a neat idea. I mean, it makes sense economically. It makes sense um, in terms of our a civic duty, but it certainly makes sense in terms of sharing the compassion of Christ with our community. By the way, very few things can unite the Dallas City Council, but they voted unanimously in favor of this project. All right. So, by the way, I'm interested in helping with this, and I heard about it from Chris Oliver 
Chris Oliver over here? You're, yeah, Chris Oliver. Libby's over there as well. Chris Oliver, K-O, your initials stand for knockout homelessness, man, all right? So he shares this with me. I got excited about it. Gary Cohorn already knew all about it and was already involved. He's very involved in City Square already. And so the three of us kind of thought, hey, why don't we invite folks to be a part of it? So I'm just, this is not a commercial, all right? But if you would like to help, let me know, let Chris know, let, let Gary know, and we'll, we'll share with you some ways to help. But the thing about this is we don't just need money, all right? Yeah, we need money to get this cottage built, but then in the years to come, we need folks who are going to be willing to sacrifice their convenience and comfort to go and build a relationship with the man or woman that we rescue. So there's going to be a lot of opportunity with this. Let us know if you're interested in getting involved. It's just one of many opportunities, all right? Uh, You will see opportunities in your world today and this week, one of many opportunities, and it's just engaging the, the grace of God in the lives of others with creativity, with improvisation, and with the inconvenience that goes with it, all right? So the master in this story, the master of the banquet, tastes the wine, and he is blown away. I mean, this guy knew his wine, and he's like, this stuff is amazing. You saved the best for last. You saved the best for last. Let's talk for just a second as we finish up this morning. You may believe, you may have been convinced by circumstances of your life that the script of your life is set. Nothing's going to change. At least nothing big is going to change. It's just set. The Lord of improvisation calls you to rethink that. I would suggest, and I believe it's from the text this morning, that you haven't seen his best yet. That you have not experienced the best that Jesus has for your marriage in the way you parent your children, in the way you minister to the world, in the way you relate to God one-on-one when you're alone with the Father. Maybe Jesus has saved the best till now. 